Good morning. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it is my awesome privilege to bring to you God's Word this morning. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 10 this morning. Uh, Thy kingdom come, God's mission to the world. Uh, I ask that you would stand, as is our custom here at Christ Central, for the reading of God's Word. We do this because we believe this book is powerful, that we need it, that it speaks life into our lives, that apart from it we're lost. And so would you now join me in giving reverence to this mighty word, Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 48. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the company of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who, he had, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcision who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful. Uh, we're thankful to be here in your house, to hear from you. We are your children and we need to encounter you, the living God. Father, I confess that I even feel a little abnormal anxiety and fear about what is going to be said today. And I hope that that's a sign that you have something that you desperately want to say and that the enemy doesn't like it. Father, would you stir up something in us this morning that we might be different because we encountered you, the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. 
and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Before I worked in the church, I had the privilege to serve as a campus minister at Georgia Institute of Technology, a little shout-out earlier, in Atlanta, Georgia. I focused primarily on ministering to fraternity guys. Uh, And although Georgia Tech does have some liberal tendencies, it's still situated in the heart of the Bible Belt, Atlanta, Georgia. And because of that, one of the encounters that I often had is I would be sitting with a fraternity guy, and he would confess to me that he was, in fact, a Christian. And yet, at the very same time, even in the same breath, he would talk about all the horrible things that he was doing to other women on the campus, the drugs that he enjoyed to partake on the weekends, the fights that he was instigating with other fraternities, and so on and so forth. And for this person... These people, wasn't just one. There was absolutely no disconnect between the two statements. Follower of Christ and so on and so forth. Part of my job was to show these guys that in light of what the Word of God says, that Christianity by its very nature produces conviction. That the gospel is not just helpful advice. It's not something that we pick up whenever we have the urge It's not a hobby to be enjoyed in our spare time. As 1 John makes plain, if there is no conviction, no life change, then there is in fact no gospel. Our text this morning is the second of Peter's two sermons in Acts. And both times, Peter is charged with the task of clearly and succinctly presenting the gospel to those who have yet to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And as he does this, Peter makes three massive points in his gospel presentation that we're going to look at this morning. First, the gospel is exclusive. Second, the gospel is inclusive. And thirdly, the gospel is otherworldly. The gospel is exclusive, the gospel is inclusive, and the gospel is otherworldly. And so I want to walk through these points with you in the Scriptures this morning, but I really want to spend most of our time this morning not on the points themselves, but on the application of these points, on the conviction that flows from these gospel truths. So as we dive into our text, I want to remind you again of our context. This is uh, flowing from what Daniel preached on last week as we talked about earlier in chapter 10, Peter has received this vision. Uh, It's a vision of various unclean animals descending on a big blanket. And God says, eat up. And this vision that Peter has serves as a discipleship moment for him that prepares him for his encounter with Cornelius, Cornelius the Gentile. So God sends Peter to this Gentile man and his family, and he tells him to share the good news of Jesus Christ with him. And so now we enter into the story at the point whereby Peter is beginning to explain the gospel. And so I want to begin this morning with Peter's biggest argument, not his first, but the largest, the exclusivity of the gospel. It's where Peter spends the most time. 
1997, K.C. Martin, a name most of you are probably not familiar with, sued the Professional Golf Association, the PGA, for not allowing him the freedom to ride in a golf cart rather than to walk the course during a golf tournament. Now, the backstory is that Casey Martin has a degenerative condition in his right leg that hinders him from being able to walk the five or so miles around your typical golf course. And what the PGA was saying was that the sport of golf, as defined on the professional level, consists of, amongst other things, the walking of the course. That's part of the essence of the game. Interestingly, the case actually went to the Supreme Court, and Casey Martin actually won the case by a 7-2 verdict. However, one of the dissenting voters, Justice Antonin Scalia, made this comment about the verdict. He said, the rules are the rules. And then in a sarcastic tone, he said, the court has undertaken the solemn duty to decide what is golf. Either out of humility or out of self-respect, one or the other, the court should decline to answer this incredibly difficult and incredibly silly question. What Scalia was saying, who are we, the Supreme Court, to define what is and is not golf? What they did. The purpose of Peter's sermon is to define what is and what is not the gospel. He is clearly delineating the parameters of the faith so that Cornelius might know what it means to be a Christian. And what we see here right off the bat is that the parameters are actually very particular, very exclusive, if you will. And this exclusivity is intrinsically tied to the person of Jesus Christ. Look with me in the text, verse 36. Peter declares that there is good news of peace that has been preached. But that peace, contrary to what Western culture argues today, is not without condition. The text says that that peace comes only through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And then in beginning in verse 37, Peter begins to make his case for this exclusivity of the gospel, a gospel that comes only through Jesus Christ. But it's not how we expect that he would do it. He doesn't argue ideas seeking to defend propositions. He argues the history. He argues the mere existence of the man, Jesus Christ. Follow with me in the text, verse 37. Peter retells the baptism story, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. A historical event witnessed by many. Verse 38, Peter reflects upon the deeds that Jesus did, healings and exorcisms. Verse 39, huge, Peter points out that he, Peter, was there observing all that Christ did and bearing witness to the fact that Jesus was in fact crucified, another historical event. Verse 40 and 41, Peter tells Cornelius of the resurrection and again how Peter himself witnessed the resurrected Christ how he ate and drank with him, pointing out that this wasn't some ghost that appeared. Jesus Christ actually raised from the dead. Do you see what Peter's doing here? He's rooting Christianity in the historical person 
of Jesus Christ. He's declaring that apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. That may sound obvious to you, but we live in a culture that says no way. Christianity is not sound wisdom or the latest pop psychology. It is a religion that hinges entirely upon the historical events of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The events that Peter himself witnessed and lived to testify about. And the application for us, brothers and sisters, is that we have to come to grips with the exclusivity of our faith. We live in a culture that demands that all roads to salvation be valid. Whatever floats your boat. That's kind of our motto, isn't it? But Peter declares a gospel that demands that there is, Acts 4.12, salvation in no one else. And so whether we like it or not, we bring a message that is by, by its very nature offensive. The gospel is offensive because it is exclusive. It requires that one submit and trust in the true historical person of Jesus Christ. Peter concludes this message by driving home this point with a gentle but pointed altar call. Verse 42, And he commanded us to preach the gospel, preach to the people and to testify. Better translation there is probably to warn that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter's saying, wake up, Cornelius. Jesus is the judge appointed by God to rule, to pass out eternal judgment. Unlike the PGA versus Casey Martin trial, there's no question here as to who makes the rules. And the rules are clear. Only those who believe in Jesus receive forgiveness of sin. So what we see is that the exclusivity of this gospel that we embrace is great. Jesus himself says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And and those who find it are few. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, to be successful in our witness to our city, we must be willing to bring the offensive exclusivity that the gospel demands to the table. Are you willing to lay down your desire to tame the gospel so that it's easier to swallow? Are you willing to bring the truth in its fullness in spite of what the response might be? It's a challenging question for us who call ourselves Christian. And yet the glorious dichotomy that makes the gospel so beautiful is that it is at the the exact same time immeasurably inclusive as well, isn't it? Which leads us to Peter's second argument, the gospel is not just exclusive, but it is inclusive. And I think Daniel did a marvelous job of setting this up last week, and so I want to simply remind you of some of what he shared and then push the application a little further for us specifically in light of our vision here at Christ Central, a Christ-centered, cross-cultural 
community. And this argument, the inclusivity of the gospel, is actually where Peter begins his sermon. This is where he starts. The very first point that Peter, the Jew, makes is, the gospel is for you too, Cornelius. Verse 34, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And the reason that Peter has to start here is because Cornelius would have heard the exact opposite narrative all his life. You see, Cornelius was a God-fearing man, which meant that he faithfully attended the synagogue, prayed continually, gave incredibly generously to the poor. He was a good man. And yet the constant retort from his Jewish counterparts would have been, these blessings of God's, they're not for you, Cornelius. You will always enjoy relationship with God from a, dent- from a distance, Gentile. As Daniel pointed out last week, this divide here, the divide between Jew and Gentile, was so hostile, it's often been compared to Jim Crow, the Iron Curtain following World War II. And chapter 11 gives us a window into the weightiness of the divide. You see, immediately following this conversion of Cornelius, Peter is called by the apostles to come to Jerusalem and explain himself. He's busted. What are you doing, Peter? What we would expect is that the apostles would be objecting to the fact that Peter just baptized Gentiles. That would have been offensive. But look at verse 3. Their objection is actually so much greater than that. Chapter 11, verse 3 says, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The claim that is made to Peter is that these people, these Gentiles, were not even fit to share the table with you. They didn't even belong at your dinner table. That's how filthy they were. We need to recognize here that the table in the first century is the primary place of acceptance and inclusion. By sharing table with someone in this time, you are publicly embracing that person. And this act of Peter's was appalling. It was appalling. How dare you, they said. And so this is the context that, that Cornelius lives within that demands that Peter begin with the emphatic statement that God shows no partiality. Peter is addressing, better yet, rebuking the grievous sin of the culture that God has made, played, God has made plain to him. He's proclaiming radical inclusivity of the gospel that is for all people, every nation, tribe, and tongue. So I think we get that in theory. But what's the application for us here at Christ Central Church? Brothers and sisters, I think we must begin to take a look, a closer look, at how we are showing partiality in the way that we distribute the gospel. Better yet, in the way that we distribute ourselves. Who To whom are we withholding ourselves and thereby withholding the gospel? You see, Peter is presenting a gospel that is for those who live across the tracks. Amen? Which begs the question for you and I, who are those who are across the tracks for you? 
Who are you withholding the gospel from because of your prejudice, because of your fear, because of your selfishness, because of your laziness? And hear me, I'm, I'm with you on the other side of this, okay? I'm not, I'm not self-righteous in this. I need to hear this just as much as you do. Who are we withholding from? As Daniel mentioned last week, ethnicity is huge here. If we've learned anything from the news this past year and even today, our country is not very good at uniting across ethnic lines. But Peter's message is certainly not limited to ethnicity, is it? Maybe for you it's a class issue. Maybe you have a hard time bringing the gospel and bringing yourself to those who are in a different socioeconomic group than you. Or what about sexual orientation? Maybe for you, you have a hard time bringing the gospel and bringing yourself to those who live in the homosexual community. Or maybe it's your co-workers or your neighbors who are across the tracks. Are you withholding the gospel from those whom you interact with each and every day out of fear of what they might think or say? The reality is that all of us are withholding on some level, aren't we? We all are withholding. And before I push any further, I need to confess that God has placed a a fire inside me that burns around these issues. And on top of that, Daniel and Blake and Justin and I went to a conference on cultivating cross-cultural, multi-ethnic church. And so God just dumped jet fuel on this flame that's inside of me. So I'm a little bit overheated, so you're probably going to get burned. And so I just want to say that up front and apologize if it gets too hot. I want to share some of what God has put on my heart from this conference and these scriptures. So we've, been, we've pinpointed out who is across the tracks. I hope that you're feeling that in your heart. Who is across the tracks? But what does it look like to cross the tracks? And I want to make this plain for you, and I want to use ethnicity as an example. Case study. Our vision here at Christ Central is is to be a Christ-centered, cross-cultural community. Amen? Can we agree on that? It's in the bulletin. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we could become a church that is 50% Anglo and 50% minority, and the Haiti staff, they might smile and applaud, no offense, but we might utterly be failing at our vision. Say, What? We could become a congregation that is 50% non-white and still be failing to be a cross-cultural community. How? Because the ratio doesn't mean junk unless there is true friendship happening amongst us. Not Facebook friendship, but in each other's lives friendship, crying on each other's shoulders friendship, snot on your sleeve, friendship, our children playing together in each other's home, friendship, maybe even dating each other, friendship. Don't go too far, Pastor. (laughs) Friendship that includes mutual instruction and mutual development. Did you hear that? Everything else is simply tokenism, mutual instruction and mutual development. We need each other. We enter into each other's lives. We lock arms because we need to do life together. There's no hierarchy there.
You see, society, even our city, only demands tolerance, right? But the gospel demands love. It's different. Tolerance is a lot easier than love. The gospel demands that we become brothers and sisters, family. That's different. The gospel produces love where love should not be. It removes our sinful prerogative that thinks we get to pick and choose who deserves to receive the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the hope for us is to become a Christ-centered cross-cultural community. And to do that, the key is friendship. True friendship with people that are not like us. But pastor, you say, help us. We don't know how. We don't know how. I'm sorry, I'm just not buying it. I'm not buying it. We all know how to make friends. We've been doing it all of our life. It's part of being a human. And we live in this beautifully diverse city. Diversity is all around us. It's not that we don't know how, and it's not that we don't have access. Pastor, I'm scared to death. Bingo. I get that. Me too. And you know why we're scared? Because there are historically justifiable, justifiable, I want to say that, historically justifiable suspicions amongst us. Can I say that? There are historical reasons why African Americans and Latinos and Asians distrust white people. Amen? Got quiet. There are even historical reasons, not as many, but some, why us white people are often afraid to engage our African American, Latino, and Asian brothers and sisters. Amen? Brothers and sisters, it is only friendship that will be able to endure the long journey of reconciliation that comes with all of this history. It's friendship that will empower us to stay in the relationship when it gets hard. Because it's going to get hard. It is hard. It's friendship that will enable us to see each other clearly in times of conflict and not revert back to the history. But why go to all this trouble? Why would we do something that history guarantees is going to be incredibly difficult? Why press on to be a Christ-centered, cross-cultural community? Well, for one thing, the text has just made it plain that the gospel prescribes it. The gospel, by its very nature, is inclusive for all people. God has not given us the authority to pick and choose who we love and who we do not love, who is worthy of the message and who is not worthy. Do we need more motivation, church? Probably. One thing we talk about over and over again here at Christ Central is that each and every one of you is created in God's image. It means you're, you have dignity and that you're valuable. Each and every person out there matters, no matter what their color, class, culture And they're immeasurably valuable and worthy of our love. Do you need more motivation? I think so. The cross-cultural community has always been God's master plan from all eternity. Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he was going to bless him and that through him he was going to bless all families of the earth. And then we see the end, Revelation 7, 
Verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, heaven is going to be wildly multi-ethnic. And if we can't get comfortable with that right now, we're going to be really uncomfortable in heaven. Amen? If you can't get used to sitting with people who aren't like you, heaven is going to be your worst nightmare. That's where we're going. Do we need more motivation? I think we might. A cross-cultural community is the greatest apologetic. Is it not? When people who should not be friends become deeply and intimately connected, as Daniel said last week, this world looks, this city looks and says, I've never seen anything like that. In a city that is outraged by the exclusivity of the gospel, we have been called to present a gospel-driven inclusiveness that serves as the ultimate trump card. You see, the horizontal reconciliation, the reconciliation between one another, between us, validates and affirms the vertical. Did you get that? When we reconcile to one another, we testify to a God who has been reconciled to us, who has reconciled us to himself. So that's why... Why multi-ethnic? Why multi-generational? Why multi-class? But what are the steps? How do we begin to experience this foretaste of heaven right now? We want a formula, right? Give me a formula. I'll do it. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's not that complicated. Let's not overcomplicate it. We simply need to begin to cultivate friendship with people not like us. Can I speak personally? Lately, I have gotten far too busy with church stuff at the expense of many of my relationships with some of my darker-skinned brothers and sisters. And I need to dramatically restructure my life to fix that. And I'm asking you to do the same. Some of us need to do that inside these four walls. Some of us need to make a purpose to build friendships within this church with people that are not like us. Because that's what we have been called to. That's what we bought into when we call ourselves this cross-country cultural community that is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. However, right now we're approximately 15 to 20% non-white. And so what that means, white people, is that many of us, in order to accomplish this vision, are going to have to go outside these walls and build relationships with people that are not like us. That's on us, white people. Lord, help our non-white brothers and sisters if all of us all of a sudden decide that we're going to come be friends with them. (laughs) Never again will they have a a night to themselves. (laughs) The good news for those of us who are shaking in our boots right now, which is a lot of us, including myself, who feel lost in our ability to accomplish this, accomplish this task. As Dr. Derwin Gray says this, the language of love transcends culture. Did you hear that? The language of love transcends culture. Love can empower us to overcome the history and the differences that are absolutely present. But there's actually even more hope than that. I want to finish with Peter's third point is actually more like God's point here. He says that the gospel is otherworldly. 
What's amazing here is that before Peter even finishes his sermon, the Spirit falls on those who are listening. And what Luke, the author, is demanding that we recognize that's been pointed out time and time again throughout the book of Acts is that salvation is ultimately a work of the Spirit. That mere eloquent speech is not enough to save souls. That good strategies and lots of love is still not going to cut it. And the application for us as believers is huge. Peter is modeling the perfect posture. He comes in with truth and with love. Peter crosses the tracks and sits with those he has no business to be sitting with. And he shares with them the full gospel. He doesn't tame it down. He doesn't soften it so as not to be offensive. And in this beautiful dance of word and deed, the Holy Spirit shows up and does the work. Spirit breathes life into dead souls. Brothers and sisters, we have an impossible task before us. The gospel exists for all mankind, and yet mankind has failed over and over again since the dawn of creation to get along. We've hurt one another, we've wronged one another, we've assumed the worst of one another. But the hope for us is that God, who is all-powerful and in complete control, is committed to seeing this vision accomplished. Revelation 7 promises that. And it's by His power that it will come to be. So we lean into and pray and trust that God will fulfill His promises. I want to close with a short story that I've shared before, but I think it's fitting uh, for our sermon this morning, our text. One of my seminary professors, Steve Brown, had a tendency of bringing wayward children into his home. And he would invite them to be a part of his family. And one such time there was a young girl who had come from an abusive family who had come to live with the Brown family. And they went on a vacation together to the beach and it was coming time to go back home. Wonderful vacation. And this young girl asked Dr. Brown if they could go for a walk on the beach before they went home. Dr. Brown said, sure. So they walked down the beach and went for a while without saying anything, just enjoying the sand between their toes, looking out on the horizon. And then Dr. Brown looked down, and he saw that there was tears streaming down this young girl's eyes. He stopped, and he turned to her and said, what's wrong, sweetheart? And this young girl looked up at Dr. Brown And through tear-filled eyes, she said these words. She said, Mr. Brown, I wish I had a family like yours. And I wish I had a dad like you. Christ Central Church, I hope and pray that we would begin to cultivate friendship in such a way that people will see this motley crew of people who have no cultural business doing life together. And they would cry out, I wish I had a family like yours. And beyond that, that the horizontal reconciliation would point them to the vertical, that they would then see God and they would say to Him, God, I wish I had a dad like you. That's our hope. That's what we live for. That's what we labor, we labor to that end. Because Christ has called us to it. That's the good news. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I hope that some of what was just said was true of your word. If anything was not true of you, would you allow it to fall by the wayside? But whatever was true, would you drive it into our souls? Would we not be able to shake it? Because it's yours, it's your word, it's your vision, it's your gospel. And I pray that you would empower us in the midst of great fear and great history that makes it so difficult, would you empower us to cultivate friendship, true friendship? God, I'm asking that you would do that in this church and in this city. Would you do it for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.